Hello and welcome to Cinephil's Take 25. We're at the quarter century mark there, Rob. Uh, if you go by uh, numbers instead of time, um, and it sounds more uh, impressive that way. And this week we are... Um, we're doing a Martin Scorsese film, so um, uh, th this is because of our you know last combination of films, in which one of the films was a Scorsese film, um, Taxi Driver, uh, and I I wanted to make things a little lighter, <laughs> so I uh, offered two films in conjunction. We're going to split them into two episodes. So uh, this week we're doing. Um, after Hours, which is a, one of the quirkier uh, Scorsese films, um, but one that I I was introduced to at a very young age by a friend of mine who was obsessed with it and had it on VHS. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was something um, special then, and I'm glad to revisit it now. And um, yeah, see what your your thoughts are on this uh, on this unusual Martin Scorsese film. Oh, so many thoughts. Like, first of all, I wish it was a quarter century. I can or I can barely remember that. Uh, uh, but they're fond memories. So but anyway, uh, yeah. And you say you turn to a Scorsese film to lighten things up. Like how many times in the history of cinema has that been said? Um, well, there's Hugo. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is Hugo. Uh, that's right. Uh, I thought the film was great. I'd never seen it before you recommended it. So, uh, like, it was uh, it was uh, the gap in my Scorsese uh, films. Uh, so thanks for recommending this uh, sure. film. And it was, uh, I was really impressed with it. I thought it was so not Scorsese uh, in so many ways, because like Scorsese, like is, is all about the crime films uh, for the most part, or if he's not about the crime films, he's about serious cinema. Uh, like that's what he says he's doing, especially in all of his uh, lambasting of uh, the Marvel cinematic universe movies and the comic book movies, how they're not cinema. And um, this uh, this film doesn't strike me as particularly cinematic in the sense that Scorsese seems to be implying when he's talking about cinema. Like when he's talking about cinema, he's talking about like The Aviator, uh, for example, and uh, these serious movies. And this movie's not serious. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's it's whimsical. It's entertaining. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, there are there's quite a bit of uh, em emasculating themes going on through here. Uh, so, but like that's about what I took as like the great uh, depth of the. If there is any depth to this movie, deep yeah. theme, it's it's maybe that. Uh, otherwise, it's just like a. Uh, surrealist Alice in Wonderland trip into uh, New York City, New York City at night. Um, so, yeah, I think yeah. that's a pretty good. So I, we had talked about a sort of the Martin Scorsese um, New York City um, mm -hmm. theme in our last discussion. And it is something we see in his films, you know, there's, I would I would wager 
half of his films take place in New York City or thereabouts. Um, and in a in a sort of um, gritty and down to earth, um, but also loving way, he portrays the city, usually in in sort of broad strokes. Um, but also, you know, we see little corners of it here and there that are interesting and cinematic. But this is a this is a unique take on it. So, um, and and you know the it's about what happens after everybody else has gone to sleep finally in New York City in the city that never sleeps, um, and it's um, I I think of it as whimsical. Yeah, it is. Um, but it's also um, sort of a it's an odyssey of sorts that that this guy goes on right. So he uh, Griffin Dunn who is, I think, an underrated actor, but he moved into producing and directing um, at some point. Um, he um, portrays this, I guess, sort of 80s uh, everyman sort of uh, editor in New York City. Um, and, and it's in 1980. So it's, it's right at the sort of the, the cusp of um, a number of things that are going on. And um, yeah, he's he takes the wrong turn, right? He makes the wrong decision and ends up, uh, you know, having this adventure in a sort of dystopian um, nighttime New York. So I, I and as I said, I saw this when a friend of mine from high school, it was actually must have been a middle school. Uh, so it came out in 80. I was 11 he had a VCR, which was a big deal back in 1982, I think. He used to watch this film over and over again at his house. Um, and I I, I think because we you know, we didn't have many other VHSs lying around. Um, but it was also we found it hilarious um, and strange. We, all, we also used to watch Marx Brothers films uh, together. So I found, you know. I think that sort of slapstick um, um, uh, air that the the Marx Brothers have might have been part of its appeal for us because um, After Hours has has a bit of slapstick to it as well. I mean, with Cheech and Chong making an appearance uh, and some other you know some other sort of great performances in there mixed in as well. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the, the Cheech and Chong. Uh, and they weren't in the film much, uh, just like a couple of key moments, uh, which were hilarious. And that was a nice, uh, that was nice, uh, especially knowing, looking at this uh, later on and seeing, okay, yes, yeah, so that that was basically Cheech's character, at least, uh, or his life. Uh, you know, you to show. Pinchot. Yeah, right. right? Uh, so who makes I, an early appearance as this uh, co-worker in the normal world. Right. right? And I re- remember him only from uh, this sitcom about where he's like my cousin Balky, uh, which he was hilarious in. Uh, yeah. Or I don't know how well that's aged, but when I was younger and saw it, it was I was like, yeah, this is really funny. Um well, yeah, yeah. That yeah, yeah. Maybe now it would strike me as profoundly racially insensitive and stereotypical. But anyway, at the time, it was deeply amusing. Um, and yeah, I, I what was Bronson Pinchot in other movies? Uh, like, 
like one other after he hit um with his tv series he made an appearance in some movie and it didn't do well so they didn't cast him after that much but yeah he was cast as this sort of new version of the griffin dunn character um right another uh desk mm-hmm. jockey um they call uh. them word processors so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I imagine that. having the job of a word processor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You spoke of Marx. Uh, yeah. I, I know you did the Marx brothers, but uh, there was another uh, Marx brother, Carl, who uh, talked about uh, how technology is going to displace uh, huge swaths of the workplace. And uh, the word processor as an actual job done by a human has been one of those things uh, now replaced, uh, which I think is hilarious. Uh, Not hilarious, but interesting. Um, You referred to this as an odyssey. Uh, Were you doing, were you riffing off of uh, Homer there or was that? I uh, I was, yeah. yeah. You know, the odyssey journey, right. Takes the Mm -hmm. hero far away from home and, and all this time, they just want to get home. <laughs> you know, they have mm-hmm. these adventures, but really, the Odyssey is about trying to get home um, and all the things that get in the way. And actually, one of the things I thought I would do someday with this film is do a scene-by-scene comparison of some of the things that get in the way. I haven't done it for this um, podcast, forgive me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, this is the... This is the same with Joyce's Ulysses that, you know, and again, it has similar themes of sort of a, a whole year and a day or some huge adventure all in this span of hours. Um, and a character who, in this case, is, again, he's sort of an everyman, you know, this and and a, a everyman nebbish, right, who doesn't mm-hmm. get out much, obviously, and and makes the mistake of doing that (laughs) and then ends up being punished for it in some way yeah it would be uh it'd be really interesting you should do that with this movie a scene for scene breakdown uh with uh, ulysses or or homer that'd be fascinating seems like a a good chapter of a book at least um yeah spin it up over the weekend i'll see what yeah 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 get back to me on monday yeah Um, i'll be happy (laughs) to take a co-writing edit on that Um, (laughs) no uh yeah yeah, no but that seems really cool um the idea of it being there's also some sort of thematic overlap like one way to read homer uh the odyssey is like the character of Odysseus is undergoing constant emasculation throughout that movie uh, or throughout that book. Like, you know, like his, his authority as the captain of the ship is challenged constantly. His very role as the husband and a king of Ithaca is constantly called into question until literally the final scene of that epic, epic poem, you know, like, so throughout, there is that underlying theme of emasculation uh, of Odysseus, and the re- yeah. and the ultimate reclamation of his masculinity, uh, you know, is uh, 
present. So there's the, also that thematic overlap uh, yeah. in, in addition to uh, the moments of uh, the particular movie or play or uh, poem. Uh, the thing, let's talk about, and oh, also, I don't know if the version you watched, I watched mine on the Plex uh, this time, oh, and uh, the Griffith, Griffith Dunn was, Griffin, Griff, Griffin Dunn, yeah, sorry, uh, was, was uh, cast as Paul Hackett slash producer. Yeah. Uh, like that. Now that was like, and now like he was involved in, but like this was specifically how he was cast. Yeah. Uh, like, and I think that's like the producer, like I was wondering if this was a misprint on the, on the raw, on uh, my no. plex, which would be weird. So what's he, is he, is this some sort of homage to, uh, Odysseus identifying himself as uh, no man slash every man. Uh, That's an excellent is, idea. Yeah. Now, now we have to co-author this paper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or is it like, you know, yeah, like lacking in, uh, or is this all conjured from his, from his own head? Uh, and like that takes you into like, I don't know, like something like Brazil. Yeah. Uh, there Which, are Brazil themes. So, mm -hmm, you know, I was, right. as I was watching this, I was thinking that office space yeah. very well. All those right. hearken to that um, office scene in the Ministry of Information. Um, and, you know, we don't meet, meet the boss, of course, mm -hmm. but we have those huge doors too out front. Again, a very right. similar architecture that. Um, that uh, Gilliam, obviously, um, uh, he did second to, to this film, but, you know, same sort of theme, the architecture of the space overwhelming the the sort of right. um, nebbishy guy um, down below. And then, you know, this floating paper in the wind, right? This is also a theme in both of those films, right? That pulls mm -hmm. us somewhere, that takes us somewhere we're not supposed to go um, and, you know, sucks us into something weird in this case. Uh, and right. Yeah, yeah, it was like, why did, why did he this adventure start? Because he lost the twenty dollars in this totally random act outside. It blew out of the the cabbie's window. The cabbie who was quite clearly <laughs> insane, uh, <laughs> you know, driving like a lunatic. Uh, which, yes, I, I know there's that story about New York cabbies how how they do drive like. It recklessly. Uh, I want to say, like, Imagine. I've only been to uh, Manhattan a couple times and nothing struck me as odd about how uh, the the cabbies were driving very well when I was there, it seemed. Uh, so, But nonetheless, there is that whole uh, trope of the insane uh, taxi driver whipping around the corners uh, like he's driving, like he's uh, piloting a trolley cra uh, train as opposed or a streetcar as opposed to an actual car <laughs> yeah yeah so but it was actually his adventure starts with something even more mundane which Where's is that he's sitting in the coffee shop or mm -hmm. diner not a coffee shop a diner because they didn't yeah. have coffee shops then yeah and he's reading trop uh 
What is he? Miller. 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 Yeah. Tropic of Capricorn or Tropic of Cancer. One of those. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think and, it was Cancer, um, but I, yeah. And he's read it before, but I mean, you have to imagine that this guy is just doing it because he wants to get out of the apartment, you know, but he works with books all the time. So, and he's reading this book in the, in this diner and he sees Rosanna Arquette, again, another sort of underutilized actress who got a bad reputation after some um, kind of flops um, with a, with a really interesting face. I always thought, I mean, uh, more than Patricia, her sister. Uh, Rosanna Arquette's face was kind of striking. Um, and and she is this, I don't know, you know, this is a sort of experience that I think many of us have had in college where we sort of meet a quirky person um, yeah. who is, um, you know, enticing. Like, and this is a siren, okay, drawing us <laughs> towards, towards some adventure, right? Or shoal, as it turns out. Um, and he gets her number, of course, and there's all these mishaps, sort of the slapstick stuff, uh, where he has to try to memorize it. And, and, um, he, he calls her just out of the blue when he gets back to his apartment, um, which is something nobody does. Um, but he does. And there, and then this is the rest of the movie is a lesson for why you don't do that. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, uh, and I'm thinking about it more. And given what uh, Kiki says uh, to him in the cafe, she quotes the book he's reading. That's to right. Him. Yeah, uh, gob in, uh, gob of spit in the face of art. And I'm pretty, pretty sure that's from Cancer, yeah. not Capricorn. Yeah. Um, and now, if it like, I, I went through a huge Henry Miller phase way back in the day. Um, in college, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, you know, you met yeah. girls like that. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Um, but Miller's, particularly Cancer, uh, it the Tropic of Cancer, not the. <laughs> um, it is uh, it is sort of an Odyssey like tale, like the protagonist of that novel is essentially experiencing some sort of what Lukash would refer to as transcendental homelessness, uh, mm -hmm. just like utterly lost uh, on the on the outskirts, the margins of all society of society. He's living in Paris, jumping from place to place, trying to find a chair to sit in so he can write Tropic of Cancer. Right. Uh, and he's also like that novel was uh it is viewed as sort of an erotic novel uh not completely falsely uh because a couple of times and a couple yeah times. it was banned but uh, like richard wright's been banned a couple times uh yeah like uh, and yeah, Dr. It, is, uh yeah right mm -hmm. uh i think the re but that novel is really henry miller's the protagonist is is calling into question his own masculinity uh, throughout it, and it is constantly getting undermined by his circumstances. Uh, so that is a thematic connection. I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, even from that first scene with Kiki in the 
in the coffee shop, this movie becomes a lot more thematically complex or nuanced yeah. uh, than one might initially suspect. Uh, like, because there are connections there between yeah. cancer, the Odyssey, and now what? It, and the the particular narrative of this movie. There's thematic. There's a thematic resonance. Um, I, I think so. Yeah. And and yeah. why why I sort of liked it and and um, as a because it's all a sort of pocket version of that story. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think Kerouac has a similar um, theme in his work. But I mean, we can be pretty upfront about what it is he was looking for that night. He wanted company. Yeah. He wanted to maybe get laid. <laughs> um, um, yeah. But he wanted to be around a woman. Um, he was if this had been a guy in the in the diner, this wouldn't have happened. Um, he wanted a specific type of company in it, and it led him on this path. So I, I mean, Scorsese, we know, has a tortured relationship with sexuality um, in in his works. I think um, maybe it relates to his time in the seminary. Um, yeah. uh, but and and the, and the way that women play roles in his films, and I, I actually think women play really strong, interesting roles in this film. Um, but you know, often it's a, it's a sort of strong male protagonist, and now we have this this guy who, like Odyssey, like you know Henry Miller, and like Odysseus, kind of gets waylaid instead of laid. Um, yes, uh, and and that and there's a and it, it's just funny. I mean, because now we have to we kind of feel bad for this guy in a way that you know normal people can feel bad for him he's not a great hero he's just this dude who's lonely working in new york city living in a you know a small studio really nice studio if for new york city that thing would be yeah. know, five thousand six thousand a month now right it's like the um, friend's apartment basically yeah. in that t- you know it's like that's more than one room <laughs> yeah like, yeah but anyway uh yeah like yeah there's so but you know and he goes to her then after he loses the 20 he ends up that's when he gets lost now he's totally stranded there's no Mm -hmm. going home now um because this isn't even a normal place he's gone to where she is Mm -hmm. yeah it's like well it's uh, some loft in soho apparent apparently which i think is hilarious he he gets lost in Soho, um, you know, like in ever been there. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it, but but like you know, like like Soho, like this is where uh, Robert De Niro uh, is like now more of a major restaurateur than an actor. Uh, he's like, and his flagship restaurant is. Uh, I think it's Nubo or something. It's in Soho. Like no. Soho. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean that's yeah. where his film company is too. So yeah. yeah. Um, like Soho Tribeca, is, Tribeca has a yeah, yeah, it's Tribeca, yeah. It's not like the, the concept of, of getting lost in Soho. Now, admittedly, this was 1985, and Soho in 1985 probably looks very different than Soho in uh 2020 or 2023 uh but it just strikes me as really odd which makes me wonder 
if there is not some sort of Lovecraftian thing going on here as well, you know, where it's like this is less, yes, yeah. less Soho and more a pocket dimension of an alternative reality of Soho, uh, you know, <laughs> that he's I, been. I think that's that's apt. Yeah. I think yeah. that's apt. So for this guy who lives, I guess, in Midtown somewhere, yeah. um, uh, around 90th or something, uh, 91st, I think. Um, and he's, you know, maybe he slummed it in college down in um, uh, Soho, but he, he's not going there now. And in, in 1985, Soho was sort of like an artist's, you know, I think CBGB's was nearby or... yeah. Um, so it was a bunch of, you know, artistic, um, folks, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, seedy underground sort of things. It's been totally gentrified now yeah. as the rest of New York has, but it, it is a different dimension for him. Um, mm-hmm. and a dimension, you know, beyond sight and sound, uh, where, where everything is going to be topsy turvy and he can't, he doesn't know the rules. Yeah. And the, the rules are never clearly revealed. Like they are, they're always like the like that the very loft where he ends up, where he meets uh, Linda Linda Forentino's character. Uh, or he, no, okay, I got the names confused. Uh, That's Kiki. He, so he meets Kiki at. That, she's the artist. She's the artist. Yeah, and I when I was referring to. Uh, Earlier, I should have been referring to Marcy, not Kiki. But anyway, yes. Yeah, like Kiki's loft. Like, my God, this place, this is this is like the whole floor of a building. Like, you know, like what what is Kiki? Is she a tenured professor? Is she a full professor at Columbia? How do you afford her husband? Her husband is this. Yeah. Rich and living abroad. Yeah. You know, it's like this is a massive space and then and then why marcy is there is like it was never clear to me in the movie if like one why she was there or two if she was there permanently if she was there overnight because it was the way marcy said it if I, my memory serves me correct, if she was just there for the briefest period of time. Uh, like, that's how I took it. But at the same time, her she had a bedroom. If, she did. And then we yeah. find out she's also dating somebody who ends up being somebody else later in the film. It's all right. Right. The who, rules don't apply. The normal yeah. rules of human relationships of the normies living in the midtown do not apply there. Right. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah. And it's like the, the very laws of physics here are designed by, you know, like they, yeah, nothing seems to be consistent, um, which isn't uh, maybe let, like, this is not a flaw of the movie. Uh, let's say Scorsese actually knew what he was doing here. Uh, so it's actually saying something about uh, the reality that he's presenting or the, how the reality of artists appears to the emergent yuppie culture, uh, which I don't know, like, 
I don't even know what yuppies would be considered today in today's vernacular, like uh, like because uh, tech bros or something like that. Yeah, yeah, like they sort of became. Yeah, except I think tech bros are like way more malevolent, um, you know, <laughs> than than yuppies. Yuppies were like can argue with you about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'll take that argument. Um, yeah, like, and um, yeah, so he was just like this guy who, given his place in the, the socioeconomic, couldn't make sense at all. It's all foreign, it's all confused, and it's all confusing and confused. Uh, there's no real consistency he goes to the bar like throughout he goes to the bar uh later on which it's like how is this place even open uh was a question you know like yeah how is it open there's like two people here you know um, different rules apply um and so this is because artists they don't live normal hours you know these People on the edge uh, or the fringes of normal, right, normie society mm-hmm. uh, go by these different rules. You know, sometimes they go to the bar at what two or three in the morning, and sure, um, I guess, yeah. But he yeah. seems to be home when they're supposed to be. Um, they they wander in and out. It's kind of like um, it feels like uh, uh, in a. A sort of um, surreal play is is what it felt like. So there's there's elements of surrealism. Yeah, you don't have explanations for a lot of things, and um, and that's because you're supposed to feel like he is. So Scorsese wants you to be as confused as lost and lost as um, as he, uh, what's his name again? Um, Griffin Dunn's character, Paul Paul Hackett. Yeah, Paul Hackett. Yeah. Paul. Yeah, extremely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was. And then like when he gets the so at this point, he's like really lost and he's left Kiki's place. Paul has. And now he's and he can't get on the subway because. The subway ticket, the subway fees rose inexplicably at midnight and there's no exceptions to yeah. this. Um, and that gatekeeper at the at the yeah. ticket counter, that is a whole Homer character right there. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to do this now because that is right out of Homer. Right. Um, but he, mm-hmm. we, should, we should mention why he left Kiki's. It's because of a moral failing of his own. Yeah, explain this to me because I wasn't sure if this was a flaw in acting or script, but I really didn't figure out. I really was unclear as to why he left Kiki's, what I was supposed to be thinking he was feeling. Like, as the audience member, I was just like, yeah, okay, so uh, what's going on here? yeah, he so. had been talking about like burn victims and scars. Right. Yes, that freaks him out. He doesn't know why. Yeah. And and you know a lot of these conversations that freak him out might be partly because he's tired. You know, it's getting late, and I don't know about you, but after midnight, especially at my age, I can't hang on to the conversation long. So 
Um, and maybe it's having kids that has made it impossible to stay up that late and converse normally. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. but, and so now um, uh, Marcy has come back and she had to go to the drugstore, which is somehow mysteriously also open, 24-hour drugstore, right. pick up her mm-hmm. prescription, which now, based on some books he's been um, sneaking looks at in her in her um, room, which she had asked him just to stay put. So he, he no. fails these tests. He fails her trust. And then he suspects that she's somehow horrifically burned. So he catches a glimpse of her thigh. Mm-hmm. And now he thinks she's horrific, horrifically burned. And then he smokes some weed with her, which is he calls shit weed. It's no good. Mm-hmm. And then he gets mm-hmm. paranoid. He kind of flees when she's, you know, not around. Um, mm-hmm. in, a, yes. in a crappy way. I mean, just because he's now he's it's not about human connection. He really just wanted, I think, to sleep. To get yeah. And and he has no interest in her as a person. So he's a crappy person for doing that. Um, and we're supposed yeah. to think. And so I guess for me, I like my like, so I don't think they I don't think Griffin Dunn sold it very well, uh, like yeah. because because I caught it like as you elaborated just now. Yes, that's what I was thinking. So I didn't miss anything in the plot, but the whole thing of him being freaked out by or horribly freaked out by the burns or the possibility of her being burnt of her having burns over her whole body. Um, he didn't sell that to me as an actor, like, uh, you know, wherein, and if that was the character's motives, like he didn't sell it to me. I didn't believe yeah. that this was a person who was traumatized by it. I didn't believe that he was a a callow character experiencing mm-hmm. drugs who is looking for a way out and just ran. It just made, it didn't, the scene didn't, it didn't seem real to me. And okay. it, it didn't even seem viable as surreal. It was just, here's a character choice. And yeah, and that I'm was not abrupt. Sure. it was abrupt. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure what's going on because like by that point in the movie, he already knows she is, uh, or, Marcy might be non compus mentis uh, from his because she's doing weird things like from the very from the very coffee shop conversation to now he to their flirtatious phone call to him showing up at uh, Linda for Florentino Kiki's apartment and Marcy being gone to the whole conversation when Marcy comes back, it's like she's um, she's a little nuts. Yeah, yeah, she's um, a little nuts. And and, and and he's okay with that because yeah, she's and, and then he's like, okay, uh, I found this book about burns, and she and he's also looked at her meds at this point. Yes, and she's uh, on. Um, a psychiatric medicine, medicine. Right. And so he's, and I guess that just didn't make sense to me. It's like, okay, so you're good with her being nuts, mm-hmm. uh, but she might have a few scars. And this is what, this is 
what freaks you out, uh, you know, like. <laughs> and that's why. So, again, I think that the the point and Scorsese has mm-hmm. a tendency to be a moralist. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that this is his his um, condemnation of his shallowness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, I think you're right. I think I think it went too abruptly that scene. So if you don't, you're not paying attention yeah. to all that. Within a couple mm-hmm. of minutes, he suddenly there's this shift and he flees, um, and you have to be paying attention to it. And I've seen it so many times that that yeah. solid with me. But if it's your first time, you might not have caught all that. Yeah, and and I think also. And I guess, yes, okay, so this is a moral critique that that the director's making about the character of uh, Paul. I guess I never assumed that Paul was a moral character. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah, so it, the critique, the director's critique of the character's morality really hinges on the audience, mem- the audience assuming that he's a moral character to begin with. If he's not a moral character to begin with, you're going to look at this and go, okay, this is an action. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So this is a good good critique of the film. You know, we're thrust into this day with this guy without knowing a thing about him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't reveal a lot about himself in the course of any of those conversations. So we only see the surface and, he fills in, I think, for a sort of um, standard uh, model of um, 20s, uh, late 20s male. Yeah. So um, we're, we have to do a little work there in filling that in. And it might also be a product of the era. Um, right. We, we don't credibly fill it in the way that Scorsese would. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a 20s male late twenties male living in 1985, New York. Uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, and how we got so, you know, there, and then, uh, the character of Horst, uh, <laughs> you know, and I guess that was interesting because, and here, here we're talking about, uh, costuming choices the difference in costuming between the character of horst and the two gay guy uh leather guys in the bar was uh complimentary uh they were basically wearing the same mm-hmm. outfit and it was interesting how uh again paul's encounter with horst he was terrified yeah. uh uh, whereas when then when he goes to the bar where Marcy's boyfriend is the bar owner uh, and there's these two leather leather guys making out, he's totally not offended by that at all. Well, uh, so, I mean, yeah. but he also this is, again, Paul's getting let so. At yeah. some point, Kiki was revealing her breast to him. And he yeah. was because he's this shallow, sort of yeah. sexually oriented guy. He he's into her, and he's he's been giving her a massage and feeling sexual about her, even yeah. while he's interested in Marcy, waiting for Marcy. Right. He goes and he thinks he's rescuing Kiki, um, mm-hmm. but it's really Horst and she that are engaged in a sex yeah. game. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and he is legitimately terrified because, again, this is all very foreign to him. This is he reads Henry Miller, but obviously he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't live that. Um, and now he's kind of pulled into a Henry Miller type underworld and mm-hmm. he's terrified, you know, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, and the night's getting later and more things are becoming more absurd too because like your serotonin levels are it's the witching hour things yeah. are things don't appear quite right things appear more terrifying at the witching hour um yeah i thought it was uh, hilarious i did think i want to we're sort of skipping all over the plot here Oh. I mean, there's not much of a plot. Yeah. It's yeah. just a bunch of weird things that happen, frankly. Yeah. Well, and then there was the, I believe, like, there's that image in, when he's taking, when he's in the urinal in the bathroom, uh, right by the urinal. Uh, really? of the shark, of the man with an erect penis getting eaten by a shark. Yeah. Um, the penis. And I think, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the tip-off. If there is a, th- a theme that is uh-huh. constant, yep. there's the visual image of what it is. It's like, yeah, okay, so this is an odyssey where you are getting emasculated, which is just what you said earlier, so, yeah. And um, so, yeah, the, then that whole bar stuff, that's really interesting because the bar ends up becoming yet another trap. Um, mm-hmm. so he's, he, first of all, he, he foils the legitimate purchase of the statue by Cheech and Chong. Um, I forget their names. Uh, I gotta look it up. I think it's Neil and Pepe are their names. Yeah. Um, just, uh, doing a quick scan yeah, here. Neil and Pepe. Yeah. Cheech and Chong, right? So they have yeah. stolen a bunch of stuff that's in the van, but they legitimately purchased this sculpture. And again, he totally misinterprets the situation due to his ignorance, his his prejudice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then ends up at this bar and he just wants to go home. So he's lost the 20 and he knows that there is a 20 waiting for him. Right. Yeah. There's a magical 20 in the sculpture that he couldn't get because he was rushed. He was fearing from Horst. Mm hmm. And then he ends up at that bar, and the bar is another trap. It's just another trap. Um, so yeah, he just uh, when, uh, the, go ahead. No, with with, with a appearance by another, you know, sort of um, great actress. I, I love to see, and and, and that's Terry Gar. Um, right. Yeah. In that weird role again, totally out of. It's a different dimension. She's out of another dimension. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this is like there is a stunning indictment here of how Martin Scorsese views women uh, in this movie that uh, like their their caricatures with they do have interiority, but the interiority is profoundly flawed uh, and nonsensical and insane. uh, All the women, you know, like. Which reminds me, I guess, not not a filmmaker that has anything to do with uh, Martin Scorsese, but Jean-Jacques Benny and uh, movie uh, 
Betty Blue, uh, where it's this beautiful French movie, beautiful color wise. But again, it's like this 13 year old male's view of what a woman is like, Mm -hmm. you know, it makes no sense, uh, you know, um, to a 13 year old male. And I think that is like all the characters in all the female characters in this movie, they're interiority is clearly present but utterly inscrutable to uh paul and the director yeah and the director is making that choice to have like our protagonist being paul he's the one on the adventure and all the women to be essentially nuts in different ways uh to his perception uh doing things which make no sense and i think that's that's really quite a stunning indictment of uh scorsese's views on women you know it could be yeah i mean as we've mentioned before he doesn't really um do much unless you know we want to consider you know 13 year old um um in taxi foster Cody Foster, who, you know, manages to um, fill that role um, with a fair amount of um, complexity. Um, but I think, I don't, I don't know. So I, I may, I'm sure Scorsese is, you know, we've also talked about his inability to portray uh, black people or really yeah. anyone, white people. Yeah. But yeah. Here, it's also an indictment of Paul. So the problem is that these women do have interiority that seems complex, and each of them has some interesting and, um, um, you know, there's more to them than the caricature that Paul deals with. But he never gets close to it because all he wanted to do was sleep with someone that night. And that, I think, is, I don't know if Scorsese is aware of it, but it is his problem that he doesn't get to know any of them. I mean, the Rose, uh, Marcy seemed like, you know, she has, okay, so she's going through so some things, but she's not stupid. And she has, I mean, she's well-read and interesting. And, and he's just, he flees because of this fear of a scar. Right. He, he is this, you know, very talented artist, mm-hmm. um, who again is not stupid and he might've had conversations with her and learned something about her art. But again, he flees as soon as Horst comes around, he's, he's emasculated. Yeah. Uh, and in, in some ways, these people are better than him in probably many ways. They're better than him. Yeah. And then we got, yes. And Terry Gar's you know, character, Julie, who, again, you know, like she has, Oh, a profound degree of loneliness is what was uh, presented uh, and just wanting acceptance. Um, But again, like I don't. Yeah, I do. I her character. I couldn't help but see it as sympathetic, but I don't think the director had that in mind when he was portraying when he was putting her on the screen, making her say the the lines i i thought he was uh yet again here is a caricature of a of a woman she is i don't know trying to live some sort of 1950s fabulation of uh middle class america in an, as a bartender as a waiter in 
Soho uh, living in an apartment across the street from the bar. It's like, okay, you're, I think this is a case of the director saying, yes, women are lunatics. Um, you know, like, uh, yeah, like that's, uh, you know, like I, I, that's, I'm not going to disagree because yeah. I think Scorsese's, um, you know, his misogynism comes through in pretty much all his films. Right. Um, and, and I, I do think that he has a complex relationship with women and femininity and female right. sexuality. Um, but and, uh, know, and just, and homosexuality, particularly in this movie, like, you know, like, uh, all the, like, the the people who are threatening paul throughout this movie are the homosexual are explicitly homosexual uh neighbors who right. are Tom's you neighbor. know yeah you know yeah. like and the narrative that's not portrayed really in the movie is hey they're just they're not threatening paul at all <laughs> like for like despite what paul thinks they're not threatening him at all uh with but he's threatening him what so the 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 two gay guys in the bar are not threatening yeah. him in any way yeah. no and, and, he, and doesn't act, he doesn't act as though he's offended or anything this is not no so but, but you're right that the, the neighbors of tom when he goes to get the, I mean, that was a whole sketchy scene there. Like yeah. he was set up for something. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. And it was just like, again, why, why are you portraying uh, homosexuals who are concerned about a rash of robberies in the building and are rightly wondering what the hell this stranger is doing in the building with the guy's keys while he's at work at what must be like three or four in the morning. What, like, that's a legitimate concern in, in some States, in some States, that's like the fulfillment of the standard ground law. Um, you know, like, you know, like this is, and like all these, all these homosexual, all these neighbors are doing is like, dude, explain yourself you know like you need to justify your existence in this space and i thought that was interesting yeah it is but again uh, and and whether scorsese is susceptible to it or if it's just the griffin dunn character who is this is mid 80s mm-hmm. you know uh, beginning of the aids era right. um uh normie um mm-hmm. mid manhattan right so yeah dunn is gonna be um uh probably homophobic to the standard degree at the time right for that population um and you know probably scorsese is too um but we also see that he's also terribly wrong <laughs> so yeah I, I still think the lesson here, but maybe Scorsese can't be credited with a broader lesson about not being homophobic because he's really just telling this sort of cautionary morality tale about, you know, don't leave midtown Manhattan trying to, you know, do things you in places where you have no business, which is a, 
you know, it's a strange sort of morality tale because it's a, but it's the standard morality tale. I mean, that's all of Grimm's fairy tales too. Absolutely. Uh, And I guess like, I don't know how hard I want to go at Scorsese about this, but it was 1985. As you point out, this is the beginnings, if not, it's the beginning of the heights of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's well after Studio 54 uh, has seen its heyday uh, in New York, uh, which was like the 70s, you know. And so you have a class of people in the country who are dying from this apparently incurable illness that and the president of the United States at the time, uh, he who Voldemort, um, who says, you know, okay, well, this is entirely and this is a problem of homosexual people. And so that's the cultural narrative where this where Scorsese chooses to make a movie depicting homosexuals in this light telling a standard morality tale how like you know it's a cheap comic choice that's yeah like and and the comedy would have worked just as well if it they had been oh i don't know like uh my cousin Larry and Balky, uh, two heterosexual guys uh, who were roommates in yeah. Manhattan, or I'm brothers living together, or just the various males of hetero cisgender uh, normie families, putatively normie families right. coming out and having this. You know, like I think it's like. But this is the anxiety yeah. of yeah. the of of that, you know, the culture to which Griffin mm-hmm. Dunn belongs. These yeah, married twenty-something yeah. um, yuppie yeah. guys in in Manhattan all have that anxiety. He went out to get lucky with a girl, and now he's surrounded by um, all sorts of you know people homosexual men that are going to rape him like i don't know what the, you know what the fear is right that yeah this is this is that anxiety and it is you know played up for laughs right yeah it was it was a i think a bad choice <laughs> to to, I mean, to retrospect it absolutely is right yeah mm-hmm. you know um but um the funny parts of the movie um what is I love Catherine O'Hara's character. Yeah. Yes. Driver. So there's two other women. So we're there so far we've done two. Yeah. Right. The two final ones are have this whole other story. And then, you know, uh, uh, there are plenty of funny bits, most of them with Cheech and Sean. Yeah. Uh, But there's the Catherine O'Hara uh, character who's almost almost comes to his rescue, but by this time he's been identified as this thief and he has to run from her. Mm-hmm. Ice cream truck lady. Yes. <laughs> uh, who's almost normal with him, except that she's a pain in the neck messing up his phone call and he's so exhausted at this point he can't stand it. Yeah. He might have been more tolerable if he once wasn't so tired. But mm-hmm. she, she's foiled his last attempts and then of course the the 
owner of Berlin who lives in the basement and does art again. Yeah. Uh, this older lady. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the actress's name, but, and again, she's kind of a savior again, but in a way that is kind of, um, you know, funny. And this is the, I think the broadest humor of the, the movie for me is when he gets encased in the plaster. Hilarious. And, yeah. I thought yeah, that was like really funny. Um, and it's very symbolic. So I thought it was, it was well done. And also another callback to, or a call forward to Berlin. Uh, where you have uh, the protagonist of that movie near the end, in the last third, getting attacked by all the paper, basically being in encased in paper in Brazil. Bur- yeah, Brazil. Uh, yeah. Basically being encased in paper again. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that, and then taken away and, ta- and yeah, transported yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting one. I, it's not there's a couple of the sort of weird comedies that Scorsese does at around that time. I was, I was also tempted to do King of Comedy. Um, but yeah. I thought I'd get away from De Niro for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but and then I think this plays nicely with what we're going to talk about next week, um, which yeah. is Unstruck Love. Yeah. But you know, uh, the funny parts are, um, yeah, mostly the sort of physical humor. Um, uh, Cheech and Chong made me laugh out loud um, because they're funny, just uh, the characters being Neil and Pepe in the movie out of nowhere is funny to me. Um, and and the way they're arguing about, you know, they, they stole all the good stuff, but the one thing he bought was, was that piece of art and he loses it and he's obsessed to get, with getting it back. And he gets yeah. it back he's in the character of Griffin Dunn. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I that was funny. That loop is funny to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I did think like the whole encasing in the 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 paper mache and then just randomly falling out of the truck, and here we are back at work. Uh, I thought that was it's like because I think everybody at a certain point in their life goes to work feeling like that, like they just fell out of a truck encased in paper mache. And now here I am at the job again, um, where it's like, yeah. And it's like, I never left. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that has Brazil themes too. Yeah. Uh, and as well. So yeah. Uh, again, this sort of supernatural mystical journey uh, and then ending up back in the humdrum dreary. Right. Uh, yeah. And it, and it is like, just this full circle and when he's back in that workplace how everything is normal like mm-hmm. uh the computer is greeting him with good morning you know be, like just like all that happened was for naught it doesn't matter here you are you're back in reality and it remains unchanged uh despite whatever harrowing or not so harrowing journey you you have gone on in your interiority nothing has changed uh, that's right in it, a way it's i mean we can picture the whole night as a sort of a dream a waking mm-hmm. dream or nightmare um mm-hmm. a- again with a sort of uh homeric uh um series of misadventures and and um you know um foils 
and, and but he makes it home uh, and and then and but home for him is this crappy little job as a word processor right and i do like we have we've spoken of this dream thing i think Sir scorsese like one of the things he did really right in this movie he played the surrealism just he the level of surrealism was just perfect because there was it's like this is just reality tweaked ever so slightly but i was never in the moment of brazil where it's where i'm asking is this whole movie just a dream uh like it's like okay i could see wow this is an odd journey he's on uh but this is not all a hallucination this this isn't a this isn't it's a dream but not a fever dream perhaps it's a it's a subterranean new york but you know weird shit happens at night yeah you know like and you know the song by the blue tones after hours no no look it up uh, listen to it it makes i listen to it whenever i watch the movie because it has the same sort of um I mean, it calls attention to that. It's a whole different world. So someday maybe I'll stay up after hours and see what it's like. But um, this is a, you know, this is a, it's a different world entirely. Yeah. I want to say, I really like this movie. Uh, watching it. To watch, right? Yeah. Like, like watching, and which doesn't usually strike me with Scorsese movies. Like, uh, like I really admire Scorsese's film filmmaking but there aren't i don't watch casino or goodfellas or any of or mean streets and go okay well this is now i'm going to be entertained you know you know like that that's not why i watch these movies whereas for this one i was sitting throughout it just wow this is enjoyable this i'm this is a this is a fun time, you know, it, it perhaps doesn't hold up so well. Uh, if you are uh, under deep analysis, I think we've pointed out some conceptual, some flaws in the concept uh, mm -hmm. of, of how, how this movie was executed, uh, which are indictments of the director's own view. Um, but, uh, or perhaps this, the view of the world or what the world was at that time. But then it what then if that was the claim, then there's, then there's, then it's not satirical enough, you know, like, uh, I, so, it's not, you know, there, there's a lot of films of that era that have the same problem. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Very commercially successful ones like back to the future. Yeah. Yes. And Risky Business, which is, I think, a really good film. Um, but despite, you know, yeah, it was before Tom Cruise was such a, you know. Anyways. Yeah, but 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 who Tom <laughs> Cruise is. Tom Cruise has that rare capacity to retroactively ruin or ruin everything he's ever done. I'm going to say like, that, except for Magnolia, another Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson yes. film, there he uses Tom Cruise as Tom Cruise, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, right. So risky business again. I, I've revisited it uh, recently and been sort of appalled by the, you know, yeah. by the tone. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And like there was all these movies. Like There's this was. 
All yeah. of these are Right. Yeah. Um, where it's like, yeah, right. For Ferris Bueller, it's like, you are despicable. <laughs> but anyway, you know, like, you know, like, um, I mean, I still watch them because, you know, yeah. yeah. And for me. Yeah. And like, like yeah and then all these like animal house like right like oh my god oh my god animal house yeah that should be illegal right (laughs) right like how are these people in supermaxes right you know like right it's like yeah like murdering animals and putting them in the dean's office for a prank you know it's like what what (laughs) you know simpler time yeah yeah like you could only maybe get away with that at Stanford these days if you were a football player. But anyway, um, like, yeah. Um, anyway, I think after I yeah. holds up in a way. Yeah, um, it was enjoyable. I, I really liked it. I did think that one scene where he leaves Marcy, that one left me just scratching my head, trying to make sense of it. That was the, That was a moment in the movie where it's like, this should have been reshot, re-edited, re-somethinged. Uh, it just didn't work for me. The well, rest of it did. Done, made the right yeah. choice when yeah. he decided to leave acting. He's yeah. not a great actor. Um, he plays the character because I suppose that's how he is, um, as a sort of two-dimensional, um, mm-hmm. somewhat baffled person. But, you know, he's not Jonathan Price. Uh, um, you know, yeah. he doesn't that comedic those comedic chops so i think he didn't carry that scene well enough for you know i've seen it so many times i got it but you're right that doesn't come through immediately yeah uh, and the rest of it and i do think like despite all the women in this movie being played or being on this on the page lunatics i thought uh they were really great like every uh female actor in this film really was amazing. They sold their characters to me like right across the board where it was like, that was really cool. And there were points where it's like, yeah, I would would like to see more of what's such a lame criticism. Could these four women be the fates? Yes, they could be, right? You know, like that's how they would function in this movie. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So now we've got another angle to this paper. Yeah, we should write that. I'm I'm good with uh, talking about the Odyssey, or maybe yeah, it would be fun to do that. Um, who would publish it? Yeah, um, nobody. Yeah, <laughs> nobody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody who collects our works long after we're dead. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. They're on a pile of things I'll never get published, but yeah, right. Uh, Important um, so, things I said that nobody cares about, right? <laughs> or things I thought were important but nobody cares about. Ninety <laughs> percent of everything. I said. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sometimes I write like whole papers and then just take the footnotes, and that's the actual paper. <laughs> All that's yeah, going on. I write them and then I just yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. It's like oh, oh I didn't that, bother. yeah. Um, but this would right. be fun if I had the yeah. time. Yeah. And we got nothing but free time these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super high inflation and all this. Yeah, it's a, no problems. Oh, uh, teaching, teaching barely takes any time, right? 
right? No time. And yeah, there's nothing else on, nothing else going on in our heads. So might as well, <laughs> well get to work on this paper. So yes. we should talk about, yeah. So I had done, um, do you have any final words about after hours before we introduce no, them? I'm good uh, with this. Yeah, yeah I, I think, thought it was great. I thought it was a great film. Yeah, that's it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm glad it was the first time for you seeing yeah. it. And it was, gave me a chance to go back and watch it again. Probably the first time I'd seen it in a decade. So it was nice to see, see it again. Um, and next time we're going to talk about uh, the second film that I had thought of would make a good sort of pairing to your taxi driver. And um, what was the other one? Taxi driver and that we watched last Searchers. time. So the yeah. search, right? Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, to lighten the mood. <laughs> yeah. um, so I came up with After Hours and Punch Drunk Love by Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm -hmm. uh, and, Sounds and, great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that with you. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll release these episodes actually one week after the other so people can yeah. catch up. Can marinate on it. Uh, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I think, is a amazing director who has uh, been uh, kind of overlooked, uh, I think. Uh, Oscar-worthy actor he, who should have gotten more recognition earlier and is now, I think, relegated to a sort of um, art house um, uh, uh, niche, unfortunately. Sandler, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, he, he was in that... Uh, movie recent shining gems or gem with oh yeah uh, yeah um that was a netflix film or something yeah, yeah. apparently it's really apparently really good in that but uh honestly uh i haven't seen it yet because because of his other films i'm not very excited to see it you know like yeah. uh like I know and, now through hotel transylvania because of the kids yeah right and so. like like Happy Gilmore and the Water Boy and all of these, just silly. Oh, yeah, silly. But and then I saw and I remember <laughs> there was a time when I liked Happy Gilmore. I thought it was hilarious. Right? Uh, I wasn't too refined in my tastes at that point. Uh, and uh, I remember watching Punch Drunk Love on the, with expecting that sort of vibe. Like, and I even remember the marketing for Punch Drug Love, you know, it just showed like the commercials I saw just showed him freaking out in a way that was very happy Gilmore-esque. And I was like, okay, so it's going to be, that's going to, it's going to be Adam Sandler of Happy Gilmore and the water boy, uh, the price is wrong, Bob sort of thing. And then watching punch drunk love not getting that at all but being totally blown away uh by what he could do uh, i can't wait uh, to talk about it with yeah. you because yeah. having watched it this 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 past week again maybe this was a seventh or eighth time i've seen that film yeah. i'm a huge paul thomas anderson nut i watched yeah. it many times um, um yeah and this one shines in a way that I'm really yeah. excited to talk to you about because yeah. Sandler can act, it turns out, and Paul Thomas Anderson, boy, can he direct. Right. Um, what else is 
Anderson Dunn. He did. Uh, oh, he did Magnolia. He did yeah. Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. Um, he he did. Um, so I, I like those films very much. Um, but he did a Oscar winner with. Um, uh, there will there there will, there will be blood, right? Right. There will be blood, which is a, a incredible film. Yeah. Not, not, almost nothing of his is bad. I, yeah. Heart Eight, Heart Eight was one I thought we yeah. might do. Uh, that was yeah. his first commercial uh, movie, um, with you know uh, um, just a, some incredible scenes. So he's a yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson loves movies, grew mm-hmm. up on movies, and makes movies like a person who loves movies. Right, and that, that's so nice to see. Which is, yeah, like I I do remember uh, There Will Be Blood. And I remember the first 20 minutes of that movie, uh, which is basically silent. And just all you got, the only sound you have are natural sounds of basically an oil fire. Uh, and just being, it's like, wow, you did this. Which I've seen like elements of that before, of course, and in European art house cinema where it's like, yes, here's a, here's 20 minutes of silence or thereabouts, but that's in European art house cinema. That's Tarkovsky level stuff. And to see it, to see it in an American made film that is set in America, I was like, wow, that's incredible to pull that off and not like they do, like Tarkovsky does, put that somewhere near the end of the movie. But no, to have that as your opening sequence, I was like, this guy's amazing. So I'm so excited to talk about Punch Drunk Love with you. It'll be awesome. Um, Yeah. All right. And thanks again, David, for this. This has been super duper cool Um, and informative. I really did like uh, this movie choice, Scorsese. Perhaps I like the movie choice, but perhaps I like Scorsese a bit less because of the movie choice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, all right.